Welcome to the Infinite Women podcast. I'm your host, Alison Tyra, and today I'm joined by Anne O'Hare, Curator of Photography and International Art at the National Gallery of Australia, where she has curated the exhibition Nan Golden, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency. That sounds like a really interesting title. Can you tell us more about the show? So it's Nan Golden's, probably the defining work of her life, and she's an, it's an amazing life, so it's a great work. Uh from the uh, sort of late 70s and and early 1980s. And she's in New York hanging out with all the cool people, um, taking lots of drugs, having lots of fun, being young, hanging out in share houses, going to clubs, all that sort of thing, which she doesn't try to glorify. It's just what she was doing. And I think it's interesting that um, her and all of her mates have a very interesting relationship to mainstream American culture, like a lot of punky sort of people at the time. And they do see themselves very much as heirs to uh, more European culture. So say Weimar, Germany, between the wars, 1920s, when there's sexual fluidity, everything goes, things are really changing, women are having a fantastic time, all that sort of thing. And so when she looks to a title for the piece, and I think Kurt Weil was really big in the 1980s, there were quite a lot of recordings coming out, Lottie Lenya, really, really cool. And so she goes back to uh, Kurt Weil and Bertolt Brecht's 1928 um, opera, or you know, sort of musical piece, Dry Groschen Opera, Tiffany Opera, and looks to one of the great songs from that. Um, opera. It's a fantastic piece called The Ballad of Sexual Dependency. So um, so immediately she's sort of signalling where she's at. It's going to be a story about sexual freedom and sexual entrapment. And, you know, I think it's interesting that she goes back to Europe to, to for inspiration, which everybody would have sort of got what that title was about at the time. So for, it's an extraordinary uh, suite of, in this iteration, it's 126 Cibachrome photographs that came out at the same time as a book of the series, which had had a really interesting early life being developed over the about six or seven years before the book came out. Um, of Nan Golden and all of her friends. She talks about this piece as being the diary that she lets you read. She also is, you know, she she also writes a lot of diaries. She's somebody who has a great need for many reasons to document her life. But this is the visual diary that she opens up to everybody to see. So already you know that it's going to be an intimate sort of portrayal of her life. It's just her hanging out with all of her mates. Uh, it has a very strong narrative that we can talk about. Uh, but, you know, one of the great things about um, it, so it started off as a sort of performance. It started off as a slideshow that she would show in all the sort of cool clubs in um, the East Village. So she's just going, she's, you know, probably it starts about 1am and she's just showing this group of images that starts to sort of get themed. It has really great music. It's a fantastic music scene. Lots of her friends are really into music. So they start suggesting great sort of tracks that can go along with each sort of section of the of the slideshow. It's changing all the time. It's interesting, Nan sort of says, you know, that she probably would have been a filmmaker, but she loves, so she loves film. She adores film. She spends all of her sort of formative years watching a film. So in a sense, the ballad is like, 
um, sort of, you know, um, stills from a film, a film that doesn't exist, but so it has a very strong sort of filmic sort of narrative. But what the slideshow gives her that film doesn't give her is an, an endless ability to tweak the tweak the, um, the the images and every single time she creates it, it's sort of created over and over again. It, sort of, you make a film, you know, you cut it, you release it and then it's gone. Whereas with these, um, with this set of um, images, which is very close to her because it's her own life and her own way of working out her place in the world and her friendships and so on and and the relationships is that every single time she shows it it changes and and the, and the people in the in the audience are also the people in the photographs so her great friend Suzanne Fletcher might be you know have lots of images coming up and Suzanne will be shouting out oh I love that one Nan or I don't like that one of me you know I look horrible in that and Nan is very collaborative in the way that she works and I think it's true so you know if somebody didn't like the image she'd take it out she says, you know, I just wanted these people to see themselves as beautiful as, you know, as, as I see them. It's a very important uh, sort of strategy and um, intent behind the work. This, these people who are often on the edge of society for lots of different reasons, who, you know, have had very often very traumatic sort of pasts. And so this notion of, you know, she sort of said when she started out, I wanted to get all my friends to be on the cover of Vogue, these people who were never going to be on the cover of Vogue in like, you know, 1970s America. But that was sort of the intent. So it has a very, uh, you know, sort of very loving and empathic sort of uh background, which I think is completely true. Like, you know, Nan's very clever in the way she talks about this work. Uh, but but I think it is, I think it's it's an authentic sort of um, way that she works with this material. And obviously the whole project is very deeply personal for her. And I just wanted to read something that her sister Barbara committed suicide when Nan Golden was 11. And in relation to um the ballad, she wrote that I saw the role that her sexuality and its repression played in her destruction. Because of the times, the early 60s, women who were angry and sexual were frightening outside the range of acceptable behavior beyond control. By the time she was 18, she saw that her only way to get out was to lie down on the tracks of the commuter train outside of Washington, D.C. It was an act of immense will. So clearly she's dealing with some very, very heavy topics. Absolutely. Nan sort of talks about the fact that um, she thinks the wrong things get hidden. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, this is a body of work that's, you know, um, 40 years, almost 40 years old now. And you'd think like, you know, and it has that great, you look at the photographs and you can almost, you know, smell the cigarettes coming off the carpets and, you know, there's phones and there's tape recorders and it looks really 80s. People sort of say, oh, my God, it looks so 80s and stuff. And particularly of a particular age, it sort of reminds them of that, that youth that misspent, often misspent youth. Um, but then, but the themes in it, I, you know, and what she's talking to, unfortunately, has as much resonance today as it, as it ever has. So she grows, she's born into this quite wonderful, you know, um, intellectual um, sort of secular Jewish family um, in 1953. And um, her parents are quite liberal, but um, her father's gone to Harvard. They're living in Boston. It's interesting. I just I recently read the most recent bio of um, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, who were in Boston in the late 50s. And they talk about just how it's a university town. 
the hypocrisy of the 50s, the sort of the, the fear of the, six, the 50s and 60s, I think that sort of Cold War sort of thing permeates everything. And she says, talks again in that forward to the book, where that quote comes from that, you know, her mother, you know, her dad had gone to Harvard, they were very proud of that fact. And her mother was always sort of saying, what would the neighbours think? And there's an incredible image, about the third image into the book is of Nan's parents um, looking away from each other, sitting very sort of thing. But you can see the elegance in her mother, beautifully dressed, but the anxiety, her hands are very tightly clasped. You can see this sort of like this, this you know, this sort of, this almost rolling out of her, this sort of anxiety. So they did what they thought was right at the time, you know, and the most normal response to uh, mental illness in the 19, you know, 50s or, you know, people that you can't control just to put to put Barbara into an institution, she was in and out of institutions the whole time. And 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 after, you know, that she died, you know, in total trauma and grief, she um, Nan heard her parents sort of saying to each other, let's just tell the other children, there was two, two other brothers as well, um, that, that was an accident, you know, and that's sort of, you know, just an intent to sort of, you know, to 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 keep them from that sort of reality, you know, the reality of what had happened. Um, but also, Nan felt that I that 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 thing of hiding, of pressing down, of suppressing things, you know, things you didn't talk about, the things that weren't nice to talk about, and it's, it has an extraordinary effect on her. She leaves home, goes into foster care. Um, and she and she talks later, you know, in that wonderful documentary that's just come out, extraordinary thing, all the beauty and the bloodshed, about the fact that she feels that probably um, that that Barbara was queer, you know, had sort of had that sort of you know sort of relationships with women, with with girls and boys and so on, and that that was part of the problem. So, you know, it's interesting. Nearly every show major show that Nan's had her whole life is dedicated to Barbara. The documentary is, is devoted to Barbara. And I think in some ways Nan sort of devotes herself to living in a sense the life that Barbara couldn't live. And she starts, says that she starts to forget the memory of Barbara. You know, she's only 11 when she dies. And in a sense her photography does come out of that. Like, you know, sometimes you talk about people's lives and you're like, well, let's just talk about the art. You know, the bio is, you know, it's an interesting thing between biography and, and creativity, how the two sort of meld together. But I think with what Nan goes through in this this experience, it's such an important part of her life, you know, time of her life, um, that she's going to document her life, she says, so no one can deny the reality of my story. No one can say it didn't happen. So that the the work I think for that reason has an insane intensity. You know, she's sort of she has to make art. She's always got that camera. She's always documenting. Often she can't remember either because she's a little bit stoned. So she you knows the next morning she can get up and you know look and see what happened the night before, a little bit like that. But there's also she uses this sort of documentary mode in a very clever way because it's not just a straight documentation of the life at all. In many ways, but she uses that that thing about photo. She says she uses um, the snapshot aesthetic, this sort of slightly clumsy look. She sort of says you can tell if somebody else took the photo. Um, she sometimes, you know, she's not she's not precious about the camera. She'll give it to friends to take photographs because she's also in the ballad. She says you can tell it's you can tell it's not my photograph to be in focus. So she sort of uses these sort of like you know hilarious things because she went to art school. She can photograph as well as anyone. But she uses this sort of snapshot thing because she says the snapshot comes from a place of love. 
you know, we take our own photographs in our own lives of the things that we love, the things we care about, the things we find important, the things we want to document to remember them, you know, the births, the deaths, the, you know, all that sort of stuff. And she knows that's why people love photo. I think she's not that interested in sort of like, you know, the photo, a lot of the photography that was big when she was starting out was sort of, sort of says was black and white stuff by men who were obsessed with, te- you know, with the print and with, you know, what camera they were using and all that sort of stuff. And she wants to get way away from that. She wants you to engage with this work in the way that you engage with photo in your life. Still that thing that people run out of the burning house, clutching the family albums under their arm. So for her, it's like a family album in a sense, but it's not her blood family it's that sort of queer thing it's the it's the community and the friends that she finds um you know a very common sort of thing in in queer culture that it's your it's your chosen family that is what's going to save you and nan's very clear about that she talks a lot about the fact that she sort of says the one shrink i went to was any use to me said that the reason why i'd survived was because by the time i was four my friends were more important than my family and she makes these extraordinarily important friendships. You know, she also says, you know, friendship is more important to me than my lovers. That's why they never sort of last. Or my, all my career, all my art. You know, it's, you know, I mean, the, the photography is very important, but it's wrapped up with this notion about friendship and community, and what's important is that. And it's, I think, that's still a very radical thing to say even today, when we're still meant to grow up and, you know, fall in love, have, you know do that sort of heteronormative thing or, you know, even in the queer world, you know, you're still meant to have that 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 love object is meant to be the most important thing in a way still, I think, isn't it? That's still the sort of dream, the sort of story where we're sold. But for Nan, it's the it's the friends who are going to um be important. And and and, and you know, her, one of her best friends, Suzanne Fletcher, who she meets even before she picks up the camera at this community school she goes to, appears like 11 times in about the first 15 or 16 images. And so she's signalling, it's like, this is what's going to be important. You know, this is this is a story about relationships, but it's also a story about friend, friendships. So she left home when she was only like 13 or 14, so quite young, and yeah. um, ended up at a commune in Massachusetts, yeah. Um, and the last school they can't chuck her out of that one so they have to keep her she never goes to any classes sounds great quite fun and she starts dating older men which I I didn't dig too deeply into this but to me grown men dating a teenage girl is always going to feel predatory yeah totally so, creepy yeah yeah and so in addition to the fact that my understanding is she herself identifies as bisexual I do yes. wonder if immersing herself in like gay and trans communities just felt safer. When she sort of tells it, it's completely bound up with the death of Barbara, isn't it? Like Barbara dies. And then, you know, while they're in mourning, some old guy sort of, you know, um, you know, assaults her and, you know, it's, you know, sort of, so it's all bound up with that sort of trauma and so on. It's an interesting question, I guess, um, that, you know, I think I see it as an ext- extraordinarily sort of importantly queer body of work, um, this notion of um, chosen family and friendships and so on that's more important than relationships. And, you know, she she, she does find a theme for the, um, for the, for the ballad. Um, it's sort of, sort of the heart of, she sort of says this, this sort of middle section, which is about um, men's abuse of women after her... Her boyfriend, who you've sort of met earlier in the ballad, 
um, a guy called Brian, who's sort of this James Deany sort of um, ex-Marine sort of guy. It's called Sweet Blood Call, this sort of section of the of the at the very heart of the ballad. Uh, and he sort of she sort of sets him up. Um, she always looks at everybody with this lens of design, her friends and her partner. I guess you've got to understand, you know, it becomes a very code that's sort of the sexual dependency of the title, this relationship with Brian, where they sort of don't want to be together anymore, but they're sort of addicted to each other. And she talks about that thing of the addiction of love, the addiction of falling in love is, is very strong for us. We love it, but it's also problematic. So she sets this thing up and then and then one of maybe perhaps the most triggering and extreme photograph, really, in a way, there's lots of sets, but I don't think anybody cares about that much anymore. Um, but like this image of Nan a month after being battered by Brian, he sort of flies into a jealous rage. She's sort of sleeping around with girls and so on. And he abuses her. He bashes her up and he goes for the eyes because she's a photographer. It's, and you see this image a month after she's been you know, abused by Brian. It's really shocking image, and it's also an extraordinary image. You find what the first time you see Nan in the ballad, she's sitting on Brian's lap. The first image in the book after the sort of title page image, and she's got lipstick on. She's put the pearls on, and you're know, sitting on. She's you know she, they love vintage frocks, all that sort of thing. Going to the op shops, getting all the sort of vintage frocks, and then when she gets you know um, Suzanne to photograph her, who's saying, Suzanne who's got her into the hospital to save the eye as well, like friends will save you. Um, she again puts Lippy on the pearls, the frock, and she stares straight back into that camera lens. And she's sort of, it's you know, it's an extraordinary image of of courage and of I'm not going to be kept down. You know, I'm not going to hide this. You get abused in this society and you're meant to hide it. You're meant to put the dark glasses on. You're meant to not talk about it. And Nan's like, you know, that's not what's going to happen here because that's why it happens, because we don't talk about this stuff. We hide it. We keep it down. She's never that critical of people per se, Brian probably, but, you know, it's about these sort of broader societal pressures, the way that we're meant to be in society, the things we're meant to talk about, the things we're not meant to talk about, and that's that's the focus of her anger and, and, and rage in many ways. And then interestingly, you go through this section and then you get to a section, um, the very next section is women together, women in bed, just hanging out in the back of cars. She has a very good back of car shot, um, looking after each other. So you go straight from, from that to this notion of care and love and empathy and support that women can give each other. It's, you know, it's a simple sort of strategy, but it's very, very powerful as you work your way through this body of work, which just, it just sucks you in whether you like it or not. Nan's a masterful, masterful storyteller. And um, she really sucks you into this this story, making exquisitely beautiful photographs apart from anything else. Apart from all the bio and what it's about and stuff, she has an eye and a half to take the most astoundingly complex and yet simple photographs using all these sort of weird strategies of the flash and snapshot and so on to really change the way that photography was. You know, photography is one way before Nan. It's another way after her. This sort of, you know, sort of they talk. People say, you know, she sort of opened that that sort of can of worms. You know, with about you know diaristic personal photography, from which no one's ever quite been able to put the lid back on. And you know, the influence um, on photo, like you know, the minute people saw those photos, they were just like, this is something else. 
It's an extraordinary body of work. It's always fascinating when you find someone who has really rejected the concept of what is and is not art or what is high art versus low art. And, you know, as, as you said, her style was very candid slice of life. Um, she said that her photos come out of relationships, not observation. Um, yeah. And these are the kind of snapshots that previously would not have been in a gallery. And, you know, as, as you said, um, she attended the school of the museum of fine arts in Boston. So she clearly knows what she's doing. It's not like she simply didn't know the proper techniques. She knew them and she rejected them and said, this is also art. This also belongs in a gallery. This also belongs in front of people. Yeah, I guess for now it's it's all that matters. Now she talks recently, she you know talks about she, she's a fantastic talker about um about art and and what it means in our lives and photo and so on and the idea of being like a photojournalist you know fly in fly out photograph things that don't really concern you she's just like why like why would you do that you know because there's there's millions of ways of taking photographs and so on but Fernand um whose work is you know sort of a form of therapy I guess you know it is it is sort of like it's a way of her to her way of engaging with the world. Um, one of her really close friends, uh, who's not in the ballad all that much, she she gets her own series, as does her other really close friend, David Armstrong, who was in that sort of drag um, scene in Boston where she sort of gets into that sort of community. Uh, there, um, Cookie, she sort of meets up in Provincetown and she's been in John Waters' film. She's super, super cool, you know, performer, sort of semi-famous, I guess, sort of certainly famous in sort of, you know, the sort of the East um, Village sort of scene. And she sort of, and Nan says, I was outside of Cookie and photography let me in. So she does sort of um, use photography to, to make connections and, you know, she's quite shy. So, you know, you can use the camera to stay, you know, back from things. It means you can be there but not really get involved, whereas Nan sort of does sort of also rejects that sort of thing. She's looked at people like Deanne Arbus who sort of used the camera in that way, wanted to connect, but there's still sort of a cold sort of eye. Nan wants the eye to be warm, um, for it to be about relationships, you know, in a really real way. You know, it's interesting, there's lots of people that she would have known in that East Village scene in the Bowery. Um, you know, Debbie Harry, like Madonna gets to um, New York the same year she does. Um, Robert Maplethorpe and Patti Smith are about two blocks over. Um, Kathy, the great punk poet, Kathy Acker, who she works with on films and so on. And they're not in the ballad because they're not really friends. You know, they're people she knows. The people in the ballad are the people that she loves. That's how you get into the ballad. You know, it's interesting. You don't get into the ballad by being a celebrity. You get into the ballad by being close to Nan. But the thing with Cookie, I think, is really beautiful. And it's interesting there's, you know, in the, in the Cookie Mueller portfolio, which is an extraordinary thing that she makes after Cookie dies in the late 80s, you know, um, this is also, a, of course, a, a, a series about the um, impact of AIDS on this community in the mid-80s. Um, but after Cookie dies, um, Nan makes a series about Cookie and, you know, she's laughing and so on. And But, you know, I guess this body, this 126 images has, have, have come down probably from thousands of images that, that, that Nan would have taken. Just, you know, she's always had that camera with her or, you know, that thing about being 
close friends with a photography, you know, you get up at like probably midday after a rough night and there's Nan with the camera, you know, and you're like, oh, God. But, you know, but there is that thing too, like people often look a bit ragged in her photographs and, and then, you know, and Cookie in this in is quite sombre. There's sort of a sombre sort of note that runs through a lot of these images. You don't see people sort of um, laughing. Um, Suzanne seems to be in tears most of the time and in the documentary you see Suzanne laughing and I'm like, oh, I didn't realise Suzanne could laugh. But, of course, I had a lot of fun. Of course, she could laugh. But they're not the images that are chosen. You know, you know Nan's taken it down from thousands and thousands of images to the 700 of the slideshow and then from the 700 of the slideshow to the 126 for this book. So o over a period of about four or five, six years. So these are the images that have worked. You know, she's showing, showing people the slideshow and then people start to get bored and, you know, go to the law, you know, go out to take more drugs or something. And she's like, oh, that bit's not working. So that bit goes out. So, you know, the images that have been left in this 126 are like the, you know, like the concentration, the, you know, it's, it's, you know, she's boiled and boiled and boiled these images down till it's the really astounding images that are left. And they're so exquisitely beautiful. Gosh, that girl. Like, you know, like, it's, I think it is that thing. Every image is just like, like she reverses, you know, she's really, she's a lot of her friends, Vivian Dick. Um, Betty Gordon are the sort of independent filmmakers at the time. So they're very, you know, everyone's really across Laura Mulvey's sort of work on the male gaze and so on is huge at the time. You know, it's through the 70s and 80s. So she's reversing that male gaze. You know, she's looking back at everybody else with with desire, the women and the men. But, you know, there's lots of images of beautiful men lying about on beds and so on looking sexy. You know, and she's just done that thing, just that just that clever thing of just reversing that where she said, you know, and, and you know, I think it's that interesting too, like in the earlier photography it was about intimacy. It was about, you know, Edward Weston photographing Karis Wilson or Stieglitz versus, you know, photographing Georgia O'Keeffe or, you know, that whole history of woman as muse, you know, the one who's photographed, curved at by men. And Nan's just done that cute sort of thing of just reversing that, you know, and just looking back at the men in the way that she's been looked at, just to just to muck it up. In the gaze in the in all the way through the series is really very interesting as well. The way that she plays with with that thing that used to be triangular, you know, that with the male gaze of people perving. So she, you know, she knows that Frodo's pervy and she just sort of plays with it, you know, has fun with it, you know, and just says, well you know, you've been looking at us and now we're going to look at you. It's, you know, it's not maybe the complete answer to the male gaze, but it is a very cute way of starting to sort of address those those things. She's not interested in hierarchy in any way. She's interested in connecting with people. You know, she's about community and friendships and she's done all that amazing activism stuff recently too. That's even another whole podcast, you know, about her taking down the Sacklers. Extraordinary. I mean, just a woman who's committed to looking after community, really, and in a very insanely brave way. You know, when this work came out, she did an amazing um, exhibition of um, art about um, AIDS in the late 80s, the first person to curate a public show um, called Witnesses Against Our Vanishing. You know, and it's it's really, she does it with David Wonorovich and there's these really insanely critical essays in it about the Reagan administration's um, relationship to, you know, like not caring for people with AIDS, wanting just to disappear. And she's like, you know, against our vanishing. She's like, we're here and we care for each other and we're not going away and you have to, you know, you can't just ignore this. You can't just hope that these beautiful 
people go into hospitals and just die. You know, even the boy, the boy, young man who um, designs the book, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency, is dead the next year, 1987, at the age of 32 from AIDS. Or, you know, so many people in this book died from AIDS. I read somewhere that, you know, in New York alone in 1986, over two and a half thousand people alone die of it. So this book comes out. I think that's the reason why Nan wants this book to go out into the world. You know, you've got kids in it, people's kids getting married, falling in love, falling out of love, you know, partying, playing games, playing board games, going out, staying in. You know, she's just, that's a very, again, it's a simple idea, but she's just at this time when this community is being insanely vilified and, you know, gays kills babies, headlines and so on, and, you know, people just want them to go away. She's just saying it's, you know, just a humanist idea. She's just saying these people are just like you and like are just like you. You know, they're not, they're, they're no different. They just they just live their lives, in, you know, in the way that they live them. So it's, you know, it's such an extraordinarily important thing to be saying at that time. And, and, you know, when she, when she starts to take on the sacklers again, I think, you know, their whole, I think I love the fact, you know, you could see the ballad as being a bit sort of pervy, bit voyeuristic-y, taking advantage of her friends and so on. But I think in the context of her whole life devoted to looking after people in her community, you see it in that light. So when she starts to take on the sacklers and their, you know, implicit sort of, you know, thing with the opioids, she sort of says to friends, do you think this could wreck my career? And they're like, yes, it could. The sacklers in you know, very important, revered family and give all their money to the arts. And, you know, to take them on was a really brave thing and she did it anyway because she felt it was the right thing to do. I have great admiration for Nan Golden as an artist but also as a person, extraordinary. And so for anyone who's not familiar with what we're talking about, the Sackler family owned uh, Purdue Pharma, which declared bankruptcy in 2019, and Purdue's very aggressive marketing of opioid medications has largely been credited as, if not completely causing the opioid epidemic, then significantly contributing to it. And moreover, that the people in charge did know. They knew it was addictive. They knew that the uses they were pushing it for were not necessarily indicated, and they did it anyway. And for the context in the art world, they donated a lot of money. So these people are billionaires. <laughs> and a lot of their money has gone to things like the Sackler Wing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The British Museum had uh, removed the Sackler name from its galleries in 2022. I actually personally interned at the Sackler Gallery at the Smithsonian. And so when we're talking about an artist specifically taking on the Sacklers, and again, this was very personal for her because, um, as you mentioned, you know, she was seeing her friends dying, not just of AIDS, but also from drug use. And she reportedly got sober after someone asked her, how can you be killing yourself when your friends around you are dying? It's interesting, if you, the documentary, she says, um, you know, she goes to see the, the the journalist who writes in the New Yorker, you know, who sort of starts to, you know, the, the family that built an empire of pain. And she sort of says, I'm going to take the sacklers down. And he's like, 
this really cutie sort of says, oh, I sort of, you know, she was this little little Jewish lady, like she's 70 now, like, you know, or, you know, she was in her 60s. And he was just like, you know, because they've got like five five stories, of, you know, of lawyers, you know, fancy, fancy, fancy lawyers. People have been trying to, um, you know, sue them for years and so on. And, she, and he was like, oh, you know, good luck with that, dear. And she did. It's, I mean, that moment in the documentary when they go back in and the Sackler name's been um, chiselled off that great big wing at the Met and they just chisel the, the Sackler name off and they go back in. It's an incredibly mo moving moment, you know, because she sort of says this is the one place they're being kept to account. All those lawyers, you get, get away with a lot. But an extraordinary. I mean, I do find that that whole... You know, the whole thing, you know, she loses one community and then she builds another one. You can see how, you know, the, how how much love and support there is in that community. But she's now still busy at work. You know, she, she'll never stop, I don't think. And so she created the campaign Prescription Addiction Intervention Now or PAIN. Mm -hmm. And I think she definitely would have seen a through line between society and government ignoring the AIDS crisis and then subsequently yes. ignoring the opioid crisis. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, as I sort of said, that it's that, it's that um, you're absolutely right. It's those society things that people don't aren't sort of honest about. That I think it's that sort of that injustice and dishonesty and, you know, the root of a lot of sort of, you know, really, you know, you know, there's, you know in, in societies that really, really gets in man's, you know that 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 people that people not you know putting greed and money and power over human relationships um, is something that she feels very very deeply about. Um, so I think I think I think that thing with community and and looking after each other, you know, which is very sort of like as I said, a queer sort of thing, um, really does go all the way through her life. Um, you know, it's interesting, the ballad, she sort of keeps working on the ballad um, right through till just a couple of years ago. And, you know, she'd keep on working on it. She couldn't let it go. And it's quite moving, it sort of says how she sort of photographed. So it says, I thought I'd photograph all these people to keep them close to me. And now, you know, when I look at the ballad, every time I see it, I just see how many people I've lost. You know, she you know, becomes this this thing that's very important to her. Uh, in fact, the the, the 126 Cedar Chromes that we acquired by the gallery was actually Nan's set of the 10. She does an edition of 10 of these 126 prints of the whole of the ballad. We've also got, we also bought early on this sort of larger set, um, about four or five of them from the set as well. So amazing um, that we did to support Nan very early on before she become, became the superstar that she is now. Um, but um, she released that very last um, set of images to us to acquire. So we actually have Nan's set that she'd kept so close to her all those years and she still has a copy of the slideshow, which, again, maybe because of the way she performed the slideshow, I think she probably has a slightly closer relationship to it. But now it's sort of being codified. It's now sort of, you know, and, she, and she's continued to make beautiful work. She was in the Venice Biennale just a couple of years ago with a, with a film compilation. As I said, film is one of her great, 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 great loves, and she's made one of those compilation films of found footage of favourite films called Sirens that she put together, and she's got a major retrospective of the slideshows 
that's I think in Amsterdam at the moment, started in Stockholm, that's traveling around Europe at the moment. So she's she's not stopped at all. It's quite moving too. She um, you know, she couldn't photograph people for a while and she lost her very close friend, David Armstrong, as well in about 2014. But you know, you read her close friend Greer Langton, who's in the in the ballad, opens the ballad in the the opening image, died in 96 of um, a drug overdose. You know, you just read, you know, they Cookie and her husband Victoria both died, like so many people have died. So I think um she does continue she kept she kept the ballad very, very close because it was it was like her family album. It's exactly what it was. It means an awful lot to her still. I do really appreciate her commitment to not only showing the the dark side of things that people don't want to talk about, but also showing mm-hmm. the the joy that when we sideline entire groups of people, you are missing out on these incredible, beautiful experiences and people that otherwise could be a part of your life. You are hurting yourself by not allowing yourself to accept people for who they are. And I would say that, you know, she certainly saw that with her own family, where because her parents couldn't accept her sister, their whole family lost her. And she seems to have extrapolated that obviously beyond just that one person. And even from, from her very first show in 1973, um, you know, she's photographing the gay and trans community and showing, you know, say the joy of drag Queens, where she says, my desire was to show them as a third gender, as another sexual option, a gender option, and to show them with a lot of respect and love to kind of glorify them because I really admire people who can recreate themselves and manifest their fantasies publicly. That's a really beautiful thing to say. I wish I'd said that. <laughs> that's I, that's really beautiful, that notion of hadn't really thought about it. You're absolutely 100% right. I think it's courage and so on that she really admires in people, that ability to, you know, I think, you know, that sort of buddhist thing almost, you know, that we all, all we have to be is our authentic self and, Sometimes it took a lot of courage to do that. Like, you know, these those kids that she knew in Boston in the 70s, late 60s and 70s, the, so she, she meets all the drag queens through her friend David Armstrong, who's part of the crowd. Um, but, you know, they couldn't walk down the street during the day without being bashed up. And yet despite that, and, you know, sometimes you have to conform, sometimes you just, you know, you have to live your life however you can sometimes, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, for those kids to have that courage to, to you know, to, to just, you know, maybe stay home during the day so they wouldn't get bashed up every day, but then to get dressed up and go out and and, and there is such joy. And he sort of says, I didn't, I don't mean it to be glorifying this lifestyle. You know, Nan finally got off the drugs. So she didn't think it was the most fantastic way to live your life perhaps, you know. To, you know, she's not trying to sort of been criticised for sort of getting the sort of heroin sort of chic sort of thing going and she's not that you know she's 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 sort of so it was lots of fun but not maybe in the end a very sustainable way of living but you know that sort of non-judgmental thing and and you know just it's, it's interesting you know in the in the in that scene they sort of often talk about the fact that it, they didn't really care whether you were straight or whether you were queer or whether you were anything in a way you just had to be yourself and and fun in a way, you know, like you can, you know, you look at, you know, there's no doubt they're looking at the ballad, you know, she does, 
you might not try to glorify it, but like they do really look like, you know, they're very, very beautiful people <laughs> having a lot of fun and hang and you know, it's because they've got that community, they've got that great life of, you know, creativity. They're all, you know, acting or making art or, you know, doing their thing, making poetry, making films. And you get that, you get that flavor definitely. You know, it's interesting there's you don't know much about the people in this. You know, there's a lot of people just documenting the scene at the time, you know, like great music scene and everything, but that's not what Nan's really sort of doing. It's, you know, it's an incredible colour palette, this incredible eye that goes right through the ballad, but it's almost like in the creation of a mood. And it's interesting as she sort of goes on beyond the ballad, the, the work does get more and more sort of ethereal beautiful romantic I think you know Nan in her heart is deeply romantic a person who looks at all sorts of arts who's really into painting and film and all sorts of arts and it all comes into her photography this incredible eye which you get from looking at other art and from just endlessly you know taking photographs and then being a really strict sort of editor of your own work but that that intense sort of um, engagement with with just making art, with just can, just doing your craft, just photographing and photographing and photographing. But it is quite moving in the end. At times she just can't photograph people and they, she goes to sort of doing more landscapes and then just sort of in this sort of very beautiful way just looks up into the sky and takes photographs of skies and so on. But the, the work continues to evolve in 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 ways that you know in fact when the people leave you sort of see because you get so you get so drawn into cookie and the fabulous people who are in the you know with her wonderful gorgeous friends Greer and Vivian and you know they're also sexy and glamorous you know sort of talks about the fact that she wants these friends to be like they're the stars of her own life and she wants them to sort of be the stars of this story, you know, that glamorous. You know, she spent her whole teenage years hanging out with David, going and seeing all those, you know, those big divas in your know, Hollywood film, you know, the you know, the Betty Davis and the Joan Crawfords and the Marilyn Monroe's. So that sort of that glamoury sort of thing does does leak very much into the um the ballad. There's an I mean, I couldn't even choose a favourite image, but there's an incredibly beautiful image of French Chris on the automobile. And they're just such insanely sexy images. They're very, very sexy. There's no doubt about that. That's sort of a lot of its appeal, you know, is just taking people you love and making them look really sexy as part of photo. And to sort of, you know, it's about desire and it's about, you know, the photo, you know, the camera works amazingly well to um is a vehicle for you know uh, you know for pornography and all sorts of things that we use it for, and that's that's part of photo you know to sort of try and say it's all very you know um, arty and intellectual and stuff. Well, it is as well, but it's also not the way that we often relate to it. And I don't think you know I've got things stuck above my um my desk of pretty people. <laughs> This is part of photo, I think, and I guess it's that thing with Nan just not wanting to bullshit too much about what photo's about or what your interesting photo's about or what, you know, our lives are about. They're made up of all those things and, you know, falling in and out of love and, you know, desiring people to, you know, she sort of says, you know, it's problematic but it's one of the great joys in life. We're addicted to it. You know, that's part of the story of the ballad is that we're, we are addicted to to being in love and the highs of what happens, you know, in that sort of, you know, the intensity of that.
but it comes sometimes at a cost. You know, it's interesting that great image at the very heart of the ballad, Nan, you know, getting Suzanne to take a photo of herself, you know, after she's been assaulted like a month later. And she sort of says, I took that photo as a reminder never to go back because she knew that she was addicted to Brian in some ways and that was a reminder of what where that relationship ended. If there was one defining word about her photography, I would think it would be intimate because yes. yeah, she clearly, it was very important to her that she had the trust of her community. She said, for me, it is not a detachment to take a picture. It is a way of touching somebody. It's a caress. I think that you can actually give people access to their own soul. Yes, absolutely. I think um, it is, you know, she sort of says, you know, don't take photographs, don't be an artist if you don't need to be, you know, and 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 the reason that she is a photographer, is an artist, is is to build these connections with friends. It is it is like a caress. And I think, you know, she looked at people like Larry Clark, his Tulsa series was the one sort of thing she says she looks back to. It's in black and white, but it's about Larry hanging out with all his druggy friends in Tulsa. You know, after the tra his trauma of Vietnam, going back to this sort of young group of people who had nowhere to go, you know, in in post, you know, in, in sort of sixties America, and she looks and seventies America, she looks back to that, and otherwise she sort of says, you know, I'd sort of make it up. I mean, she's looking at lots of stuff, but you know, she's not like a lot of photographers like that. She's she's sort of really, you know, all of her interests are very photographic, and yet her interests sort of go way beyond photography as well. She's not in any way interested in, in in a sort of a technical way. She's only really interested in the way that it communicates something to the people who are looking at the photographs, you know what I mean? That's that's where she's at. That's creating a, this extraordinary mood that does, you know, really care, you know, really beautifully, extraordinary sort of like way that the that she puts the ballad together, you know, it's it's in themes and it, it sort of builds momentum until you get to this devastating, you know, turn that page. You see a horrible a picture of of Brian glowering into the lens and then the next image is Nan you know, having been assaulted by him. Incredibly clever way that she builds. I, one of my favourite sort of um, segues is she goes from the brothels and she's just open, started to talk about the fact that she did some sex work during that time to make money. She worked in bars and, really important bar. She worked in this incredibly important bar, bar in, um, in, in um, Times Square called um, Tim Pan Alley where a woman called Maggie Smith only, um, um, only employed women behind the bar and a lot of them were sex workers. It, she's like, you know, be a sex worker, it's completely fine. But if you do want to get out of that life, I'll give you a job in the bar. So incredible sort of places where Nan sort of says she got politicised by Maggie in a way, like she was just taking photographs and, you know, in a way, just intuitively taking photographs of her life. And it was, and she sort of says it was Maggie who sort of like, sort of said, oh, you know, there's interesting stuff here happening now in the photographs about relationships and about women in society and so on. But you go great, you go straight from that sort of scenes of brothels in the ballad to people getting married. I think it's fantastic. Maybe that's comment on what, um, you know, sort of you could say the role that marriage can play in society or has traditionally played in societies. It's quite funny. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, I, I love it's not too overdetermined. This is a time when all of her friends are starting to get sick and dying. You know, a friend of, um, I think an ex-boyfriend of um, David Armstrong's, they lose, they're the first person in their community in 82 
So by 86, there's been lots of funerals, lots of, you know, lots of looking after people, lots of care. Um, but the ballad does end maybe in the only place it could end in 86 into sort of images of cemeteries and empty beds and the very last image is a sort of graffiti image of skeletons. So it's interesting, later she goes on and she makes very explicit um, sort of portfolios of some friends of hers, um, a couple in France, um, one of them dies from AIDS, and you see him, you know, emaciated in the bed and all that sort of stuff, and you see you see Cookie dying in the Cookie portfolio, um, and, you know, you see her after she's, you know, she see her in the coffin. So she goes there, she does do it more explicitly, but in the ballad, interestingly, it's it's not the major, you know, she's got this theme of relationships that's sort of like she's kept it tight. You don't have to know them. You don't have to know those stories to love the ballad. I don't know all those people. I don't know all the in stories. But you know the in stories there. You can sort of tell. There's this great moment where Cookie Mueller, who's been going out with um, a woman called Sharon, meets for years, they break up and Cookie goes off to Italy for like to get away, and she comes back with a guy called Victoria Scapazzi. She comes back with this artist guy, who then she gets married to, and um, you can just sort of hear the community, like friends going, like sorry. In many ways, I think it is a gift to her community in the first instance, um, and and it, then it goes you know, way beyond that to be one of the most important, you know, series of contemporary photography. But that it starts in this very sort of intimate and particular place of these people who trust Nan not to betray them. You know, I think it's that great thing that they understand that Nan won't dishonour them in any way. And 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 because of that trust, insane trust that everybody has, that they go all in. You know, they'll they'll let Nan into their bedrooms when they're having um when having sex and when they're on the loo and when they're shooting up. And when they're, you know, when they're rough after a, you know, a big night out partying, you know, that there's that trust that's at the heart of this body of work, which I don't know that there's any other body of work that maybe, maybe because of Nan, it's become such a commonplace thing, the way we think about photo, you know, became so, so, in, you know, wonderful work by Paul Knight, his wonderful relationship over the last number of years is on in Melbourne at the moment um, you know, it's it's me. You know, become something that's sort of possible. Maybe it's because possible because of Nan and photographers like Nan to really have changed that, changed the way we we think that photos can be in museums. Nan Golden, the Ballad of Sexual Dependency, will travel to the Art Gallery of Ballarat for the International Festival of Photography from two March twenty twenty four to two June twenty twenty four. Join us next time on the Infinite Women podcast, and remember. Well-behaved women rarely make history.